Welcome to episode 63 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre, featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use and consider leaving a comment or rating. If you want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. Paul Sun-Hyung Lee is an award-winning actor best known for the role of Appa in In's Choi's Kim's Convenience. When we spoke, Paul was performing the role at Neptune Theatre in Halifax and returns to Toronto in the role starting February 8th at the Young Centre. So uh, thanks for, for, for doing this. I've actually wanted to, to talk to you for, for quite a while. Yeah. I remember uh, we, we were sort of corresponding a little bit back and forth yeah. a few months ago. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> thanks. Well, it's been a crazy been year for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, to go from, I mean, the uh, Kim's Convenience alone, just that's that's been a, a huge ride theatrically. And then to have that do so well on, on television. Yeah. Um, uh, before before I talk about about Kim's convenience, I, I I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, your road to theater. Like, how did how did theater become a thing that you wanted to do? Oh wow! Um, you know what? It was uh, quite by accident, to be honest. Um, it was one of those things where, you know, going going to school, uh, elementary school, junior high, and high school was never even an option for me. It wasn't even on my radar that um, I could do that for a living. I mean, I'd, I'd seen plays on stage before, uh, and I remember uh, the first professional production I ever saw in Calgary growing up was at Theatre Calgary. It was Saltwater Moon, and uh, I'd never heard of David French before, um, you know, had never been to a real sort of contemporary, I guess, for lack of a better term, even though it is set in, um, you know, in the past. Uh, mm. I, you know, the only other sort of productions I'd sort of seen a little bit of were like Shakespeare in the Park. And uh, things like that. But the real, like the first theater I ever went to was in Calgary at uh, Theater Calgary and watching that. And I was completely blown away by the story and the actors, uh, you know, on stage. And it was just so lovely and so touching. And it sort of stuck with me. But even then, it, it wasn't anything that really seemed to be a viable option for me. I mean, my parents were the typical immigrant parents. And they wanted to be, me to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or one of those time-honored professions that were safe and well-known uh, to their generation. And, um, you know, sort of going to school and being the model student and doing well with grades and stuff like that, I found myself very, very dissatisfied with the, with the subjects that I was learning. The sciences just didn't really hold the same sort of um, intrigue or passion that they once had when I was younger. And uh, when I went to high school, I was actually involved in a program called the International Baccalaureate Program. And um, it's a, sort of like an accelerated program for gifted students. And you're basically doing sort of uh, higher level uh, learning uh, in the various subjects. And I found that, um, you know, because of my disinterest in the sciences, I was failing horribly in them. Um, and uh, But I really, what I really sort of glommed onto and really started enjoying doing were the more creative side of things, uh, such as 
you know, English. We, we were able to do, you know, we're given free reign and we were able to be as creative as we wanted in presentations to the class and stuff. And I found myself really, really drawn to that uh, part of, of edu- my education. And, um, you know, it came time to go to university and uh, I had applied to go to U of T um, for different reasons. A, I wanted to get away from home for a bit and sort of stretch my wings and, and uh, sort of be my own person. And uh, my girlfriend at the time was going to U of T, right? So it was one of these perfect things where I thought, oh, well, I could be with her and I could be away from my parents and in a big city. And, uh, you know, it, it seemed like uh, a path that I wanted to take. And while mm-hmm. I was choosing courses for university, I saw the UC drama program. And uh, I thought, hey, this sounds like fun. You know, we, <laughs> we, had, we had, you know, uh, we had done presentations at school. We'd ne- I'd never done a play. Never done any of that stuff. And for whatever reason, that intrigued me. And I applied to go to U of T for the drama program. Now, they don't just let anybody in. You have to actually audition to get in. And yeah. I didn't really know what I was in for. <laughs> so when I got to Toronto, um, you know, I had to go to UC College. And I hated the city. I hated Toronto. Hmm. Um, you know, first, as soon as I stepped off the plane, it was like somebody threw a wet blanket onto me because it was just so humid and hot. <laughs> And Calgary is, is, you know, it's near the mountains. It's very dry. Yeah. And the humidity was almost overbearing. And the first person I met screamed at me uh, because I guess I'd done something wrong at the airport. I'm not sure what it was exactly. Um, it was a big city. I'd never seen, um, you know, panhandlers before. Right. Um, and so it was all really very overwhelming. And then finding my way to, uh, you know, the University of Toronto and then being thrust in this sort of, it was kind of a, an open workshop slash audition for the program. Did you have to prepare an, like a, a monologue for well, it? That's the thing. No, it was, it was just like they just said sort of show up for this big sort of group workshop thing. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. Right. So <laughs> I show up and I'm the only kid of color in the room. Uh, and there are all these kids who had obviously gone through some sort of theatrical training. And, uh, you know, a lot of them were warming up. I remember that quite vividly. There were kids, they had their, their shoes and socks off, and they're stretching on the floor. <coughs> and I thought, okay, what, I, I have no idea why they were stretching or mm. what we were in for. And uh, Ken Gass um, was the instructor, and he was running the, the, the workshop. And uh, Pia Kleber, who was also the head of the program, was there as well, sort of um, observing. And we went through a series of theater exercises, theater school exercises, um, that were – um, very physical in nature. And I, I'd never, ever done anything like that before. And I just didn't know. I, did, I couldn't see the point of a lot of these exercises. Mm. And I actually thought, this is crazy. This is absolutely insane what we're doing. Like, it just it made no sense. I didn't know how in tune an actor had to be with their body, with their voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the physicality of movement along with text was, it was completely foreign to me. So I didn't have a very good time. Um, and in fact, the longer the, the workshop went, the more I kind of felt out of place and the more I thought maybe this isn't for me. And, uh, I remember ending, we all had to stand in a big circle and Ken Gass, he said, uh, I want each of you to step into the middle of the circle and say this line. And the line was what a terrible, miserable, horrible day. And I thought, this is perfect. Like this is right in my wheelhouse because I was just <laughs> not in the mood. And I remember, you know, the different kids coming in different dramatic readings of it and sad and angry and this and that. And I went in and I was just so filled with disgust. <laughs> when I said my line at the end of it, I spat on the ground and just sort of, <laughs> and, um, 
you know, then we had the interviews afterwards. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I was so naive. I brought my high school yearbook with me to show them because somebody had taken a picture of one of the presentations that we had done uh, and written a sketch. And, like, I had no idea, really. Mm. And um, I got into the program. And I think it's it's twofold. I think, A, one of the reasons I got in was the fact that I had, like, zero experience. So I had zero bad habits right, mm. right off the bat. I was just as fresh as you can get in terms of, uh, you know, being able to build somebody up and train them. And I think now looking back at it um, with a lot of sort of uh, experience is the fact that, you know, I was the only person of color who actually did come out and audition. And, um, you know, that always looks good when you, <laughs> when you accept somebody <laughs> into a program who is not of, the, you know, doesn't look the same now. Yeah. You know, I, I want to temper that with the fact that, you know, I don't think they would have just let anybody with different colored skin into the program. I think they actually did see something within me that they could try to work with. And I guess yeah. in my interview, I must have shown some sort of aptitude for learning. <laughs> and, um, yeah, after that first year of universe, uh, at U University College Drama Program, Ken really, really made me fall in love with the craft of acting. I had no idea how much work was involved in becoming an actor. You know, to me, it was always, oh, you just learn a bunch of lines, you say them and you act angry or sad or scared or whatever. But I had no idea how connective and how really intricate the, that world is and how focused you had to be and how there was actually a craft involved in acting. And he really, really made me fall in love with that whole process. Mm. Um, and it opened up my, my mind to a bunch of different possibilities and, um, you know, never turned back. And I was terrible. Like I was, I was the worst actor, you know, I spoke too fast. I wasn't enunciating. I rushed through my moments. I didn't sit, I wasn't grounded, you know, all, all those, those, those very basic mistakes that a lot of young actors do, you know, uh, I did, but it was an incredible experience. And, uh, you know, as, as I went on through the UC drama program and grew and learned more and, uh, you know, finally finished the program and sort of like left university it was one of those things where I was just either too stupid or and too stubborn to sort of go into anything else. So I just sort of stayed the course and kept plugging away. Mm. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's how I kind of got started. Well, one of the questions that I sort of have listening to that story is, I mean, you had such, you describe your, your description of that, that workshop uh, and how miserable you were. I kind of, I'm sort of curious after that, what was it that made you, still want to go into that program you know it was interesting i i'm i'm of the personality where i don't like to give up on things too easily and i guess part of the reason why i i had such a bad time was because i felt like i didn't belong and um you know i i just i wasn't one of this group and i didn't know anything about the world i just felt as much of an outsider as you can get and i was in a new city and, um, you know, it was one of those things where I wasn't expecting to be invited to the program. And I guess maybe I was mentally preparing myself for that eventuality for them to say, well, thanks for coming out. Uh, but you know, we're, we're going to go in another direction and we've got other students who are ahead of you in terms of their development and we're going to go with them. And so I think I was just sort of mentally preparing myself to be rejected. And so when you think you'd, you're not going to make it, but there's a party that really wants to be part of that group. Um, you know, and then the opportunity is there. I mean, you know, the exuberance of youth, I jumped at it. 
Uh, It just, because it was something that I really, really wanted to explore, but never Mm -hmm. thought I would get the opportunity to. And so when they opened that door for me, I jumped and, uh, you know, I'm glad I did. I'm really glad I did. Yeah. Um, Once you got out of that program, Mm -hmm. uh, what was, what was the, your trajectory like? Were you, did you uh, go, did you find acting jobs right away? (laughs) Did you, did you have, did you have a hard time? I know for me, uh, I think it was early on in my theater school time. Somebody looked, looked me and said, you might have a career in 20 years. Right. My face was older, but then there were other people who were like out the door. They looked like young kids and everybody was like, uh, was, was clamoring for them because they sort of fit yeah. their look. Yeah. You know, and I felt that I really felt that in going through the university drama program. I mean, they have, I think in any program, they have their leading men and ingenues that they want to develop. And they say, you know, you've got a look, you've got a hit. Um, you're something that, you know, theater companies are looking for. And so they can't help but sort of, have a subtle bias towards, you know, because every, every program needs their success stories in order to maintain enrollment, right? They want to point to graduates and say, hey, look at them. They went through this program. Don't you want to be part of this long history of, of fine actors that we're producing? And so the byproduct of that is, you know, the, the kids who are just sort of are there and that they don't think, you know, well, they might be a good journeyman actor or they might not act or this or that. They just sort of, the priorities aren't there. And it's not really a level playing ground. That's just kind of how it is, especially when you have a large group of kids. You know, I think we had something like 20 to 30 kids in our class for first year and two classes of 30 kids. So that's, that's you know, that's a lot of kids you have to sort of pay attention to. And the ones that show an aptitude, you sort of naturally sort of, you know, the instructors will sort of see that. And it's because it's more fun to work with these kids in a way, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. there's something there that they can mold and this and that. And there's a shorthand, um, you know, and I didn't really take it personally um but it was one of those things because when you're a person of color in a society that is not of your color you're kind of used to being marginalized you know it takes place in the form of a million different microaggressions every day and not only in regular society but in the media too where you're just you're projected as not being important yeah and when you see that enough you start to believe that either subconsciously or not you just start to believe that and you know you start to just you pull back and you go, okay, well, this is how I expect to be treated because everybody says I should be treated this way. And I think that's, that's a big thing growing up now and really getting more uh, experience and finding out that more people feel the same way or we're feeling the same way. And now finally having a vehicle or having the, the strength to find a voice to step up and say, no, 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 this is not right. This is not right. And, uh, you know, it just sort of shows how systemically ingrained that bias or prejudice is in our society. But we're moving now, I think, is a golden age towards um, just awareness of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where it begins. When we become aware of a problem, then we can start taking steps to sort of correct that. So when I graduated, when I got out of the program, UC drama program, I mean, they were fantastic in terms of providing a very, very strong foundation in terms of skills. Um, But again, U of T is an academically based uh, institution. So I knew a lot about theater history. Um, you know, I, I knew about all the different styles of acting and the history of theater and Canadian theater and this and that. But none of that's really applicable to an every, you know, for an actor trying to get a job. Yeah. Um, and that's the one thing that I think U of T really didn't prepare me for was actual the real worlds. Because 
once I graduated, I, I had no idea how to get a job as an actor. I didn't know I needed headshots. I didn't know the role an agent played. I didn't really know about the unions or what they provided. I had no oh, wow. sort of outlet in terms of like, where can you go for continuing support? You know, I learned of Theatre Ontario much later on. Um, and it's these, these subtle little things that I guess people kind of take for granted that you should know about. But, you know, like you don't know what equity is. Oh yeah, yeah. You know. That's that's really that's really because to me, I mean, why my I, like I come to that like I went to to George Brown where there's always been a business of acting course, mm-hmm. which was always like you know they taught they taught us that, and, and I know that the universities are more academic, but the idea that to me it just sort of seems like like. Of course, you wouldn't know how all that works mm-hmm. if you've never been in that professional situation. If nobody tells you about that, then I don't know how you can be expected to make a career of it. It seems like it's one of those things that's missing from those, some of those those programs. Yeah, you know, and because, you know, there, I guess it's this whole idea of, well, we make actors. It's not our job to let you get to help you get work. It's our job mm-hmm. to help you be able to work once you get the job. And I fully agree with that because we're not, you know, I can't speak for George Brown or any of the other things, but I know yeah. U of T that was just, even if we'd had like a weekend seminar where we had people from the industry coming in and letting us know and doing the very basics of, you know, like, well, this is what the industry is like. And mm-hmm. these are the different theater companies and these are the ADs and this is the protocol for auditioning or requesting auditions or this is how you look for an agent and this is what an agent can do for you, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but that's, it's one of those things where that's not a priority for them. Right. The priority really is about just, you know, let's teach them how to act, not mm-hmm. how to get a job as an actor. So, right. you know, mm-hmm. I, and I think that that would be the little edge that would sort of push a lot of programs, um, you know, a little bit further in terms of uh, having people who've gone through the program stay in this profession. Because I think a lot of people just got discouraged and was, were like, you know, well... I can't get a job as an actor, so what am I going to do? I got to eat, right? Yeah, so I see that. I see that at, at people who graduate from all from all schools, like yeah. different team matters. Like it's a, it's a tough, like it is a tough business. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, I just a couple. I mean, we're talking a lot about school, mm-hmm. um, but I, one just one last thing. I mean, you were mentioning that when you auditioned, you were the only person of color. When you were at the school, were there other? people of color in there with you or were you, did you still feel like you were the lone person of color in every year? I think the joke was in every year, there was always an Asian student, <laughs> just one Asian student. And the year before me was a guy by the name of Komen Poon. I remember him and I was like, Oh, he's, he's Chinese. And then there's me. And then the year after me, uh, was a girl named Nancy Kim. <laughs> and then the year after that was another kid named Alex Trong. And it was always it was always this sort of running joke that we kind of had. It's like, well, we filled the Asian quota, right? We got mm. the one Asian in per year, type mm. thing. But it was, I mean, yeah. Looking back at it, it was it was a very homogeneous looking group. Mm. Um, but that also speaks to, you know, I mean, I didn't know I could that was even an option to train to be an actor, right? Yeah. So it's not as much the program's fault as the fact that systemically, as a society. You know, we're not showing enough of these faces on stage. So the parents who might be bankrolling or who might have a heavy influence on what their kids are doing don't see that and say that's not a viable option. Right. So a lot of these kids aren't even auditioning for it, you know, because why should they? I mean, why train for something that you're never going to get a chance to use? Mm. Um, And I think more and more you hear the cries, you hear the calls for 
uh, representation on stage and screen, but, you know, award winners like uh, uh, the gentleman from um, Master of None calling mm-hmm. out and saying, you know, to, to the Asian parents, give your kids the cameras, give them the opportunity to create and this and that. And you can, you know, we have success stories. And when they see more success stories, then it's easier for them to let their kids sort of go into this field where they can tell their stories and they can represent not only themselves, but their communities at large as a byproduct. You know, that's very important as well. And that's something that we've really sort of uh, taken to heart and realized Mm. and recognized and gone, yeah, you know, there aren't very many success stories in the Asian community for actors or writers or directors. There's a few, but there's not nearly as many as there should be. And if we can get to the source of it, if we can start reaching a broader audience and showing these immigrant families that, you know, this is, you can be a success. It might be a little bit harder, but it's, it's attainable. Then I think we'll start to see that rise in, in enrollment or people trying out for these programs and trying to get their training. Yeah. 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 Um, so to talk about, about Kim's convenience, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, I mean, you're going to be, you're, you're in Halifax right now as mm-hmm. you're performing, uh, the show, you're coming back to Toronto and then after that you're going to, uh, Montreal mm-hmm. and you're heading towards your 400th <coughs> performance of APA as APA. That's right. Tomorrow um, night. Tomorrow night. Wow. Tomorrow night. Wednesday will be my 400th. <laughs> um, how does that, I mean, how does that feel? I mean, first one thing for an actor to to be able to have the four hundredth performance in any role mm-hmm. is is pretty rare. Um, but for one that's been uh, in 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 a show that is as much of a, a, a Canadian sensation as it is possible to be, um, how 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 does that that feel as you're approaching that milestone? I feel incredibly um, blessed, uh, actually, because I realize that it isn't something that happens to, to a lot of actors where they get, um, you know, the chance to play a role for, for that long. Uh, it really is a luxury and it's a gift uh, to have this opportunity. And, um, you know, it, it's overwhelming sometimes because, you know, I think about how many, how many times I've done the show and how many different cast members we've had and the different cities we've gone to and what the show really means has become the mean to, to a lot of people in the community. Um, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude for it and a little bit of exhaustion, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> uh, it's taken its toll on me just in terms of being away from my family for mm. huge chunks of time. Um, but, you know, this this role is a gift. Ince wrote this role and I was lucky enough to sort of be attached to it and, you know, do the various workshops. And, you know, once he, Ince likes to say that once once he heard me read for the role, he started writing with my voice in mind. And we've had a wonderful sort of collaborative symbiotic relationship with this play over the years. And I'm very proud of the fact that I've been able to do a good enough job that, you know, people still want to see the play and they still (laughs) want to see me in it. So that that's very uh, heartening. Um, But it is, I mean, and I I still love doing the play. I love the role. Um, And I'm still finding things in the role, which is, it's such uh, a treat. It's, it's so mind blowing that, you know, you get a different actor in who's, who's playing the same, you know, like a role that's been previously defined and they bring their own energy to it, their own sense to it. And within the confines of that character, they give me something different that makes me approach my response to them differently. And I, I find something and it's, that's, 
that's why acting is so fantastic. Like on any given night, you're not going to recreate the exact same show as you had the night before. It is a very fluid sort of beast where you have to take what's given to you and you have to respond accordingly to make it realistic, uh, to make it, you know, truthful and authentic. Right. And otherwise you're just, you know, robots on stage barfing out lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the thing about this role. And, uh, you know, I look back at it and never would have, I never dreamed that I would have the opportunity to, to play a part like this for as long as I have and to have it received this way. Uh, and so I am eternally grateful and, um, yeah, I, I just, and humbled, humbled by the whole thing. Well, I mean, the show was, was, uh, I think people recognized right away when it premiered at, at the Toronto Fringe that it was something special. It had a workshop before Fringe, though, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, Ian's yeah. been working on the play since 2005, I believe. Mm. And it started off as um, – because he was in the Playwrights Kitchen at Fujin Theatre Company. And the, um, the then artistic director, Nina Aquino, you know, that was part of the exercise. They had the, Their final project was to have two completed scenes of a play – and they presented them. Hmm. And the feedback uh, to his two scenes about Kim's convenience was so overwhelming that uh, Nina encouraged Ian to expand this into a full-length play. And so over the years, he had done at least four or five different workshops, like once a year. Um, you know, And I think there was only one workshop that I wasn't involved in because Ian wanted to hear somebody else in the, in the role, which is great. Um, but he would, you know, he'd give up on it and he put it away for a bit and he'd drag it back out and he'd get some seed money from his church to do another workshop. We do the workshops, we do a public reading, we get the responses back and it just kept plugging away. So he was working on it while he was part of the conservatory company at, uh, at uh, Stratford. Um, and then when he joined the, the Soul Pepper Academy, he was working on it still. And, uh, you know, finally in 2010, he finished it. He was like, I'm done. And he shopped the, the script around to all the different theater companies and they all took a pass on it. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where on the surface you look at it and you go, okay, well, what's a synopsis? It's a story about an immigrant family in Toronto. And, you know, the father wants to push the store onto his daughter and you read it and it's kind of like reading Shakespeare, right? Like you read yeah. it, oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it isn't until you see it performed and you hear the words <clears throat> out loud yeah. that it's really given a life. And that was the thing, you know, when nobody, when all the theater companies took a pass on it, I don't think they really saw the potential for it. They just sort of went immigrant story. Oh, it's an Asian guy, Asian story, Matt. Yeah. But uh, they don't do their, they don't do that well. And so, you know, when that happened, Ince, you know, he'd worked on it for so long. He was adamant about not just letting it die. He needed to see it produced at least once. Mm-hmm. And so that's when he entered it into the, uh, the best, uh, the new play competition for the fringe festival yeah and he ends up winning it and he gets a spot in the fringe and he comes to me and says hey i got a spot in the fringe you want to you know will you be in it can you do it absolutely and then you know he gathered the forces rallied the troops and we started rehearsing that thing you know four hours a day here or there uh in the basement of a church outside wherever we could find space and uh we lost our director uh, Wayne Mangesha was going to direct the Fringe show, but she got an offer to go to Stratford. So that was kind of a no-brainer, go to Stratford. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of took over, but we all were very collaborative in terms of shaping the scenes and, you know, how the play went. And uh, it was one of those things where a lot of it was done on the fly, just because that's the Fringe. You don't, yeah, have, yeah. you don't have time for rehearsals. You don't have as much 
resources as you would like to have a fully polished piece, which is why I think audiences are very forgiving at the fringe. You know, it's a ten dollars yeah. a ticket. You realize it's not going to be letter perfect, but you're there. And when we hit, oh my god, it was crazy because our opening night we were at the Bathurst Street Theater, it's a two hundred seat two hundred seat theater, yeah. and it was packed. Yeah, and um, you know the response is overwhelming. Like they just, people went nuts and I thought, okay, well that's great, but it's opening night. Opening night's always weird and filled with friends and family. And the next night I remember it was a Friday night and it was a 10 o'clock performance. And I thought, eh, you know, it's Friday night. There's a lot going on in the city. We might have 75 people maximum. And I remember showing up early to the theater to get ready. And there was a lineup around the corner. Yeah. And I thought, what the hell is going on? And I asked, well, what show is everybody waiting for? People were lining up to see Kim's Convenience. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, you know, the buzz just sort of hit the fringe. And it's one of those things where, you know, once you get that buzz and everybody, you know, sort of jumps on the chance to see something that, you know, uh, is supposed to be the next big hit. And, uh, you know, we just kept – people kept lining up earlier and earlier yeah. to try to get those tickets. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was crazy. And then, of course – you know, we finish the run. We sell out every single run. We do an extra show because we're the patron pick of the venue. We got invited to the Best of Fringe Festival. Mm-hmm. And then all these theater companies that had said no came knocking on the door wondering if they could present Kim's on their stages. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting, uh, like, from there. And, and that performance, I mean, I saw one of those Fringe performances. And it was, it was comp- like, something special. I don't think I'd ever seen... Uh, there I have been in the last 10 years of my life two genuine standing ovations that I was part of and Kim's convenience was the first oh, wow. um, you know standing ovations happen all the time but Kim's convenience was like the first one that I can remember where there yeah. was no question there was that it I had to oh, um, and you. to take that no thank you um and to take that show you then went to to soul pepper did, mm-hmm. did you find that this that the the script changed much from fringe to soul pepper or did it basically stay that it were there many changes or did it really no, stay that, that was the thing you know because whenever a show from a fringe jumps up to a main stage and especially you know from to one of the biggest theater companies in the city um you know, with with the incredible resources that Soul Pepper has at the disposal. I mean, we jumped on, and then you know, Wayne came back, and we had a set. You know, uh, our set designer Ken McKenzie, who's with us at the Fringe, had this budget to recreate this beautiful store on stage. Yeah. We had a lighting designer, um, you know, and we had eight hours of rehearsal a day, six days a week for like four weeks, which was a luxury. So, yeah. you know. There's that whole idea of, well, you know, is it going to sustain? So let's let's look at the script and we'll pull it apart. And Inset actually started writing a couple of extra scenes that we sort of put in. And by the end of it all, it the, the play is remarkably the same. Hmm. Um, you know, those scenes, the extra scenes that he wrote didn't work. They didn't fit. Hmm. So we dropped them. Um, and, you know, we tried, we pulled those scenes apart. We did dramaturgy on them. We got up on our feet. We tried different ways of playing them. And it always, it just sort of all went back to the way we performed it at the Fringe um, because it was, it just came from a place of honesty and authenticity. And you, you really can't beat that. Um, and the biggest difference was because we had been able to rehearse and really explore the text so much, we were well more, we, we were more grounded in our choices. Mm-hmm. We knew why they work now. Uh, when we were rehearsing for the Fringe, there wasn't enough time. So you, you go with your gut, what yeah. feels right. You know, you can't really articulate why it's right. You just, 
it, it just feels right. And, you know, rehearsing at Soul Pepper with Wayne all those, all those weeks, you knew why they worked. It was like, okay, this is a connection that we make. This is why we're playing this role like this or this beat like that. It's because you now have a chance, the luxury of exploring and mining that. And so in my mind, the show became very, very grounded and rooted mm-hmm. in a sense of, of uh, realism and authenticity where the choices made perfect sense. And there's a confidence and a self-assuredness that comes from that. And um, it was just reaffirming all the choices that we had made before. And, mm. uh, you know, it, it's hard to, uh, hard to argue with success. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, again, we were lucky enough that this state, I mean, Kim's convenience for me has always been a question of, well, is it going to be good enough? You know, is mm. it going to be good enough? Like from the first two scenes, is it going to be good enough to be a, a play? And from the play, is it going to be good enough to, for fringe audiences, you know, to, to enjoy And is it going to be good enough for main stage audiences to enjoy Is it going to be good enough for cities outside of Toronto to enjoy when we're going on tour? Is it going to be good enough to, uh, to, to be a television series? You know, mm-hmm. is it, is it going to be good enough to go to New York outside, you know, like someplace outside the country, you know, and, and Kim's has beaten the odds on all of them, you know, but there's, there's always that little, for me, at least that little bit of fear, like, mm-hmm. is it going to work? Is it going to work? And uh, is it going to be good enough? And uh, so far, so good. Uh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, it's. It. I think it's. It, it seems to have resonated everywhere it goes, and on television as well. It seems that uh, it's one of those. Uh, I, I can't actually think of a show, a Canadian show, in the, for want of a better phrase, sitcom genre mm-hmm. that has really succeeded in Canada. We've been known for sketch comedy, but never quite anything that could be a situation comedy. Mm-hmm. And to see people, to hear people like I see all over Facebook and Twitter, people raving about, about, about Kim's convenience. And it's, it's kind of amazing to see this show that, that started out uh, on a two in a 200 seat theater at the fringe that's mm-hmm. gone on to, to television. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I, I think the the key to the show has always been. I mean, the the one thing they were very conscious about was trying to capture the essence of what made the play so successful. And at the core of it is, I think we we play we portray characters that are real, that are authentic and honest. And the tone of the of the show, even though it is a situation comedy, is we're not playing general or broad for laughs. We are trying to be as specific as possible and we're playing the situation and letting the humor arise from that instead of trying to play the obvious gag. And I think we've caught a lot of people by surprise with that. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what sort of sets us apart from, you know, your your regular sitcom where it's like set up, set up, set up, joke, set up, set up, set up, joke. You know, we're really um, we're presenting something that I think is is new for a lot of audiences. First of all, it's an all Asian, um, you know, cast in terms of leads in a sitcom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, there's just, that's a first in Canada. We've had Asian yeah. families presented on, on, you know, our screens before, but always in a dramatic sort of sense, you know, like, um, it's really great work that's put out there, but never yeah. in, a, in a comedy. And I think because we're not, we're not going for the regular, the cheap chop socky, oh my God, he's funny because he sounds funny sort of gags. Well, we're actually portraying them as real people in real situations that, and things that actually happen that are quite humorous. And because we're playing it with integrity, the laughs come from there. I think audiences recognize that. Audiences are very smart 
And mm-hmm. we've seen the same old, same old before, and it works. And there's there's a market for it, absolutely. You know, I'm not trying to downplay or denigrate, you know, shows that use that formula because there is a desire for that. But I mean, do we want to do something that's exactly the same as everything else, except for the color of our skin? Uh, no. You know, yeah. we, we want to do something that is fresh and exciting and real and will yeah. make people notice. And the first season of Kim's, I think we're very fortunate in terms of, you know, Yvonne Fetzon was a fantastic leader and such a calming presence. And then Ince with Kevin White as co-creators and co-showrunners putting together a fantastic writing room, you know, and then the production side where everybody who was on board you know, who'd read the scripts, really, really loved the scripts and believed in what was going on. It was a very, very happy set from top to bottom. Everybody mm-hmm. felt appreciated. Everybody believed in the work. Everybody was, you know, um, really pulling for it. And when you're on a happy set, it's amazing because that translates on the screen. I absolutely believe that, you know, mm-hmm. you can tell a happy set from what you're yeah. watching on the screen. And it makes people do that extra bit. Because they want to, because they believe in it, you know, and that's that's incredible. We're incredibly fortunate to have had that situation this summer, um, and uh, I, I think that that in itself as well speaks to the success of the show, yeah. because there's just so much love and respect put into it. Mm. It's the the show has, I mean, it's expand it's it's expanded uh, the, the character of Appa, um, Mm -hmm. putting him in different situations. Do you find, have you found that having done the TV show and now coming back to the play, are there Mm -hmm. things that you've learned through the show that, that, uh, that make things in the play, uh, a little bit different? Um, just thinking about that, I, I remember when we were about to start shooting the TV show, I was really worried about how, would translate just because I'd done the stage version for so long and the TV version of Uppa is 10 years younger. The entire family has been young down by 10 years mm. and everybody's world has been expanded. And I was under the impression initially that I thought, okay, well this is Uppa from 10 years ago and he's going to be much different from the Uppa in the play. And, you know, it's just like, how do we get that? So he becomes the Uppa in the play later on. Um, and, you know, my fears were to, laid to rest quite quickly on that because it's it's like almost like an alternate universe because there's no way with the way that we've played up on the television series for this first season that he would be the same person that you would see at the beginning mm. of the play. Um, it's like Star Trek. It's that alternate timeline now where yeah. we're in parallel universes. And, um, but, you know, going from the television series, which was great in terms of expanding my character and Gene's character and Andrea's, like, Janet and Jung and everybody else's world's uh, much more expanded upon and, and, and looked at in detail and so much fun to play. Stepping back into the place is actually, I was a bit scared. Huh. <laughs> I kind of felt like, well, is this part going to be too small now? Is he going to feel too restrictive and too, you know, the whole summer I've been spoiled. Mm. And so to come back, like, is it going to work? And, you know, it is, it's been a treat. It's, it's so good to go back to the roots of where you came from, where they, the character originated from, and to see the genesis of a lot of these ideas that we expanded upon on the television show, to see these are where the kernels came from. And to be able to play him, you know, because the play takes, it, it just takes place in the course of one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's just supposed to be a regular day in Appa's life, the same as every other day has been for the last 10 years. 
um, and he just sort of gets thrown thrown to the the ringer. And mm. you know, it, it's refreshing and it's lovely. And the fact that we have a new cast as well adds a different wrinkle to it. But um, you know, you look at it and you go, "That's a different upper from the TV upper." Mm. And uh, I know a lot of TV audiences who've seen the show and they've, they've responded on Twitter and actually spoken to me. They say, "Wow, it's." It's kind of the same, but so different, hmm. you know. And it, and it, absolutely because the upper, uh, you know, on stage is a very. Um, he's still in a very closed off, very sheltered, very uh, bunkered mentality. You know, hmm. it's been this way so long. The isolationism, the, the 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 way he's set in his own opinions. You know, nobody's ever really rocked the boat on that. Whereas on the TV show we explode those ideas every, every episode. Right. So there's an incredible growth curve, but for the play to sort of get back to that Genesis and to see where it all came from. Um, it's nice. And it, they're really great reminders for me. So when we head back to season two, you know, to just sort of mm-hmm. keep that there. And that's, again, that's, that's a byproduct of being able to play this role over 400 yeah. times on stages, yeah. you know, yeah. <clears throat> and you're going to be able to, you're, I mean, like we were saying earlier, you're going to, to Montreal mm-hmm. and then, uh, New York. How do you feel about, about taking this, this very Canadian show, uh, to, to New York to present? I'm excited at the opportunity to do it. Um, you know, it, it's very funny because, you know, if you just switch a couple of the words in your question, it, it, you could say, you know, like, how do you feel about taking this very Korean centric story the audiences mm. in Canada, how mm-hmm. are they going to, yeah. you know, and it's the same thing. The strength of the play is the fact that we are talking about a lot of universal themes, mm. uh, family, intergenerational conflict, love, mm-hmm. forgiveness. What is a man's legacy? And these are things that resonate with a lot of people, with human beings, period. And, you know, one of the biggest compliments we get is, you know, from people watching the show and say, you know, I'm not Korean, but this guy is my dad. Or that's mm. my mom, or that's my uncle, or this or that. Uh, people, because it's so specifically, you know, um, Korean, it becomes universal in a, in a weird way. And I think audiences, oh, I hope audiences in New York will look at that too. I mean, New York is a city of immigrants, and mm-hmm. really, it's it's the same struggle. It's you know, it's about family, it's about duty, it's about love, honor, forgiveness, all these things. And I think. You know, despite the fact that, oh, this is a Canadian play, I think there are a lot of commonalities uh, that are just uh, shared with being a human being and having parents or having children and wanting to do the best by them as you can. And, um, you know, that, that, that's, that's what I love about doing this role as well, is, is that it connects with so many people. It's interesting because, you know, <clears throat> I've heard, you know, if, if, if you had... If Ince had uh, decide, had thought that he wanted to make a play that was universal, it probably wouldn't work so well exactly. as being so specific and telling such a specific story about a specific character that that kind of his the fact that he's so real and so uh, Korean and he is who he is mm-hmm. has made him resonate with so many people mm-hmm. because the specificity is those are the things that we see in our own families. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> that's, that's one of the things that I really love about it too, is the fact that people sort of go, um, uh, you know, 
because when you try to be something for everybody, you're never going to fit. You're never going to succeed. You're always yeah. going to fail, right? It's, it's too broad and people can see through that. But when you're speaking truth and when you're being authentic, people can recognize those qualities because they're human qualities that, you know, really sort of define up not Korean qualities, but human qualities. And mm-hmm. you can have, he could be Greek. He could be, you know, Jamaican. He could be European, and there's that whole stubborn dad sort of mentality that's there. And a lot of people have said, you know, like they'll watch it and they'll, they'll realize, yes, even though it is specifically Korean, we're not that much different. You know, yeah. they, they, they look at that and go, wow, you know, we aren't, you know, your dad, I had no idea about the Korean culture, but I'm looking and going, it's not that much different from my own culture. You know, my dad can be just as stubborn or can say just as stupid things <laughs> as Uppa does. Right. And so, there's a joy in that. There's that whole idea that, you know, we are not that different at the end of the day. We all have our hopes and fears. Um, and that draws us together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just trying to think. Uh, oh, you know, one, one question that I, I have for you, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, you're on Twitter. People find you on Twitter. Your, your Twitter handle is... Uh, is uh, <laughs> bitter Asian Dude. Uh, bitter Asian Dude. Yeah. And... Um, I have to ask about about that. Yeah. Um, is was that a tongue in cheek, or when you created your Twitter account, were you a bitter Asian dude? It was kind of tongue in cheeky. Um, there mm. are moments. I mean, I'm sure you can ask my friends where I, where <laughs> when, uh, when I get my, my my hackles up, I get I tend to rant a little bit. Mm. Uh, when I was younger, I was I was bitter. Um, mm-hmm. I was blessed with uh, hair loss at a very early age. And so much like you, I was told that mm-hmm. once I got older, I would probably find a lot more work. Um, yeah. I started losing my hair when I was 21. And, um, mm. you know, because of that, because I was going bald, basically, I wasn't, I was too old looking to, to play the roles that were in my age group, right? And mm-hmm. so I got sent up for older roles, and I was too young looking to play those roles. So I kind of yeah. got screwed on both ends. And, you know, that with sort of hitting not a glass ceiling, but just having doors of opportunity Mm. closed to me because of not only the way I looked in terms of, you know, my hair, but because of the color of my skin, Mm -hmm. um, time and time again, you know, that that affects people. And I, you know, I I get it when the younger generation feels like, you know what, we're not given any opportunities, we're mad, we don't want to take it anymore. I've been there. I understand that. Um, And, um, you know, and like when... When things aren't going well for you in the, in the area that you're very passionate about and you yeah. let it affect you, it bleeds into the rest, into your other parts of your life, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, for me, looking back at it now, I let it affect who I was. And I was still mm-hmm. fun, but there was this undercurrent of nastiness and bitterness that, that um, maybe I was using as a defensive mechanism. Um, you know, I, I never used my anger or bitterness to hurt people. I always sort of deflected it in a very, very humorous way, um, you know, towards my situation or, you know, this is why I didn't get it because a racist, you know, or this or that. And it's just stupid things you say that mm-hmm. when you're, when you're yeah. younger, you don't know any better and you just want to vent, you start to say. So when it came time to picking a Twitter handle, I just wanted something that A, people would recognize um, and it was easy to remember and uh, mm-hmm. B, that people would get a laugh at. And so... Yeah, you know it's worked. <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> is just the 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 your your early days in the theater. You're talking about the 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 you know 
not finding not finding the uh, the the roles there because uh, and and believe me, uh, around the same time that you were losing your hair, I was also losing mine. Mm-hmm. So I I feel you. Yeah. And uh, you know, having a, a young face but a old scalp yeah. is uh, is can be a, a difficult thing to do to to deal with in the business. Yeah. Um, but then um, I I I I had the advantage of 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 some 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 white privilege there so it, it didn't affect me in the same way that it, that like because mm-hmm. i don't get seen in the audition room in the same way as a person of color mm-hmm. um the roles that you were getting uh in, in the back in the uh, when you were you know before in the days before kim's convenience yeah. um did you find a lot of stereotyping or did you were you able to find a community that was able to 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 give roles that were uh uh worthy comes to mind but more like just like like people and yeah. not an age no. character in air quotes. yeah i hear what you're saying um <clears throat> on stage i was always given a better opportunity than on screen to be mm. honest um you know i remember the the first big play that i was able actually sort of recognized that and people sort of probably it was um the second play i ever did and it was called mom dad i'm living with a white girl written by marty chan and um, he, uh, it was, it was having his Toronto premiere, and uh, it was this about this Chinese couple and their son, and the son was dating a white girl, and he was, you know, the son was a bit of a, he's a bit of a milk toast and a mama's boy, and was definitely afraid of how his mom was going to react if his, you know, when she found out that his girlfriend was white, uh, and they were having a really, really difficult time casting the father in that role um, because. Uh, you know, it, it was the play was divided. It was a two structure. There was the regular world where it's, you know, the, the older Chinese parents. And at the sound of a gong, it would slip into this fantasy world of uh, the, you know, the old B movie, the peril of the yellow tongue type thing where the, the parents mm. were like the mom was the arch villainess and the father was the toady sort of henchman. And, uh, you know, they were chasing down Agent Banana, who was a son and the white snow princess, who was his girlfriend. And it was difficult for them to cast because they needed an actor who looked old enough to play, believably, the father who was in his 50s, but who had the physicality and the stamina and the comedic chops to be able to play the over-the-top henchman in, uh, huh. you know, in, in the, yellow par- the yellow claw world. And yeah. they were killing themselves. Because they could find actors who were old enough to play the dad, but who couldn't do the physical stuff. And then they could find younger guys to play the physical stuff, but weren't old enough looking to play the father, believably. And in mm-hmm. I sort of slid in with my, you know, receding hairline and my <laughs> ability to grow facial hair. And, uh, you know, it, it was like almost a perfect fit. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that character was my first sort of foray into like, oh, okay, this is an actual, I'm not a stereotype. I play a stereotype, so I get to play that up. But at the end of the day, he, he has, you know, he's, he's a dad. And he's worried about mm. his son and he fights with his wife and, you know, things like that. And so that was my, you know, my second ever professional role uh, that I'm very, very proud mm. of. Um, and theater has afforded me a little bit more in terms of giving me characters to play. I think that's just the nature of theater is the fact that, you know, time is limited, space is limited. So you're not going to waste it with characters that don't add to the play. Everybody mm-hmm. should have like an integral role or this or that. Film and TV, not so much. You know, mm. uh, that's where I found most of the stereotypical stuff that, you know, you sort of bang your head against the wall and go, 
Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to complain too much because they put bread on the table for me. You know, they paid me. Yeah. I went in. But you know what? They're not satisfying roles. I mean, if you look at my, my resume, the majority near the beginning, um, yeah. you know, they're day player parts. I made a career yeah. as a day player. I show up. I'm the king of exposition. I explain things and then I disappear. And so I've played a lot of ER doctors. I've played, you know, a couple of lawyers. I've played, you know, uh, a clerk. All these things, nothing really substantial. Again, it's just I am a cog in a wheel to help pull the story along because um, the writer didn't do a good enough job to sort of yeah. get the main action <laughs> of, the play, uh, of the story told. You know? yeah. And, <clears throat> I mean, that's the way it is. Or, like, whenever something big did come up for film and TV, it was always, oh, oh, it's a Chinese gang. Okay. Uh, or, you know, it, it's just all the same old, same old stuff. And it, right. it's, you look at it, you go, well, who's, who's the writer? Oh, they're not Chinese. Oh, okay. Right. Enough said, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. me and some of the other actors, we joke about it. It's like, okay, you know, they want these gangsters, but these are gangsters from the 90s, from a Chow Yun Fat movie, right? Like, yeah. Real triads don't act like that anymore. <laughs> That's so not how, <laughs> you know, and it's so even in that, yeah. sort of, you know, mm -hmm. if you're going to get me to play a stereotype, at least have it. Let it be a relevant stereotype, one that's at least contemporary instead of something that's stuck yeah. in the past. Um, yeah. So there's that. But I mean, with all that, too, there have been gem roles that I've been I've had an opportunity to play that have been very, very wonderful. You know, um, and it started with Randy Coe on Train 48, you know, that that improvised soap opera where I was able to they gave me reign to develop a, 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 a real character, somebody who uh, wasn't just one note that wasn't just the color of his skin or just did one thing or was defined by one single thing. You know, he was a complex, fully realized character, which I love, um, you know, shoot the messenger. I was able to play Marty Chen, um, who was the, the lawyer uh, for the Gazette. And I was able to work with some incredible actors and learn from them as well and talk about their experiences. And then of course, Kim's convenience, which is like the crown jewel for me um, yeah. to be, you know, to be given the lead, on a television series is something I never, ever, ever thought was going to happen. Mm. Totally honest. You know, yeah. it's just, it's not in the books. And you look at me and you look at my body type and you look at my lack of hair and I'm not sexy. I'm not young. You know, it's just like, what's out there for me? You know, and then along comes King's convenience and just upset the whole, upsets the whole boat. And that's why, you know, every moment I spend on set, I'm living yeah. a dream, you know, um, and that's that's why I'm grateful for it. So grateful. Yeah. I don't think anybody could would ever like going into any fringe show would ever think that that show a few years down the road would tour Canada, be going to the States and be a TV show. Yeah. These are things that we in in. Especially in, you know, it's fringe, you know, starting at the fringe, indie theater. Mm -hmm. This is these are not things that we think of. Yeah, I, we joked about that. <laughs> I remember, mm -hmm. you know, Ince and I were at the beer tent after a couple of performances and we we're just sort of buzzing about the response to the show and we're joking and say, yeah, hey, wouldn't it be great if a theater company picked us up, put us on their main stage? <laughs> and then, you know what? Then we're going to go on a national tour and then they're going to make it into a TV series and then they're going to make a movie. <laughs> and we're joking yeah. about stuff like that, you know, because you don't mm -hmm. expect it. You don't. You no. Um, yeah. and that's like every, that's, ah, I, it's so humbling, Phil, 
to, mm. to be, you know, going through this and just, especially after the, the long road that I've, I've, <laughs> I've had to travel with this because, you know, at a very early age in my, my acting career, I sort of resigned myself to the fact that, you know what, you're never going to be a star, but what you're going to mm. be is a good character actor. And I love character actors. They are my favorite. Like they're the glue that holds stuff together. Like you're in, they work so much and they do such a good job that people remember them, but they don't remember who they are. It's like, yeah, you were in that. Yeah. Didn't you play this guy? And you're that guy in that movie. And oh my God, he was yeah, in this yeah. movie too. You know, cause I thought, you know, let's be realistic about the state of the industry and what's available to me. Because yeah. if I think, I think if I I'd gotten on my soapbox and said, oh, I want a series, I deserve this. I deserve that. Gimme, 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 gimme. I would have gone insane, you know? And that's, that's the thing. You make your opportunities by being excellent mm. at what you know you can control. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's as good as any, uh, any place to stop. Thanks. Okay. Thank you so much for talking with me, Paul. No, this, is, this has been great. So nice. Thank you, Phil. Mm-hmm.